Ancient Egypt, the light of the world. Book three, Elemental and Ancestral Spirits, or the Gods and the Glorified. Written by Gerald Massey. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. The fetishism and mythology of inner Africa, left dumb or unintelligible, first became articulate in the Valley of the Nile. Egypt alone preserved the primitive gnosis and gave expression to it in the language of signs and symbols as mouthpiece of the old dark land. From her, we learn that amulets, talismans, luck tokens, and charms became fetishistic because they represented some protecting power that was looked to for superhuman aid, and that this power belonged to one of two classes of spirits or superhuman beings, which the Egyptians of the ritual called the gods and the glorified. The first were elemental powers divinized. The second are the spirits of human ancestors, commonly called the ancestral spirits. The present object is to trace the origin of both, and to distinguish betwixt the one and the other, so as to discriminate elsewhere betwixt the two kinds of spirits with the Egyptian wisdom for our guide. According to the historian Manetho, who was a master of secrets that were known to the Hir Seshta, the keepers of chronology in Egypt, had reckoned the time and kept the register for a period of 24,900 years. This period Manetho divides under three divine dynasties with three classes of rulers, namely the gods, the heroes, and the manes. The reign of the gods was subdivided into seven sections with a deity at the head of each. Now, as will be shown, the gods of Egypt originated in the primordial powers that were derived at first from the Mother Earth and the elements in external nature. And these gods became astronomical or astral, as the kus, or glorious ones, in the celestial heptonomy, or heaven, in seven divisions. In their stellar character, they become the seven glorious ones, whom we read of in the ritual, who were seven with Horus and Orion, seven with Anup, at the pole of heaven. Seven with Tot, with Ta, and finally with Ra and Osiris, as the seven lords of eternity. These two divine dynasties, Elemental and Cronian, were followed in the list of Menetho by the Manes, or ancestral spirits. In his Hibbert lectures, Renouf denied the existence of ancestor worship in Egypt. Nevertheless, he was entirely wrong. The New Year's festival of the ancestors determines that. This is referred to in the calendar of Esni. It was solemnized on the 9th of Tot, the first month of the Egyptian year, and was then of unknown antiquity. The Egyptians entertained no doubt about the existence, the persistence, or the personality of the human spirit or ghost of man. And as we understand, Benetho's account of the Egyptian religion and the times before Mina, the worship of the ghosts or spirits of the dead, was that which followed the two previous dynasties of the elemental powers of Earth and the Cronidae of the astronomical mythology. For the present purposes, however, the three classes mentioned fall into the two categories of beings which the Egyptians designated the gods and the glorified. The gods are superhuman powers, whether elemental or astronomical. The glorified are the souls once mortal, which were propitiated as the spirit ancestors here called the manas of the dead. Not that the Egyptian deities were what Herbert Spencer thought, the expanded ghosts of dead men. We know them from their genesis in nature as elemental powers or animistic spirits, which were divinized because they were superhuman and therefore not human. Sut as the soul of darkness, Horus as the soul of light, Shu as the soul of air or breathing force, Seb as the soul of earth, Nu or Num, as soul of water, Ra, as soul of the sun, were gods, but these were not expanded from any dead men's ghosts. Most emphatically, man did not make his gods in his own image. For the human likeness is, we repeat, the latest that was applied to the gods or nature powers. Egyptian mythology was founded on facts which had been closely observed in the ever-recurring phenomena of external nature and were then expressed in the primitive language of signs. In the darkness was the void, otherwise designated the abyss, darkness being the primordial condition. It followed naturally that the earliest type in mythical representation should be the figure of darkness. 
This was the mythical dragon or serpent, a pop, devouring reptile, the monster, all mouth, the prototype of evil and external nature, which rose up by night from the abyss and coiled about the mount of earth as the swallower of the light, who in another phase drank up all the water as the fiery dragon of drought. The voice of this huge, appalling monster was the thunder that shook the firmament. The drought was its blasting breath that dried up the waters and withered vegetation. As the mythical figure of natural fact, this was the original ogre of the north, the giant who had no heart or soul in his body. Other powers born of the void were likewise elemental, with an aspect inimical to man. These were the spawn of darkness, drought, and disease. In the ritual, they are called the Samai, demons of darkness, or the wicked Sabao, who forever rose in impotent revolt against the powers that wrought for good. These Samai, or black spirits, and Sabao supplied fiends and spirits of darkness to later folklore and fairyology. And like the evil Apap, the offspring also are of neither sex. Sex was introduced with the great mother in her Huggest, most ancient form of the water cow as representative of the Mother Earth and bringer forth of life amidst the waters of surrounding space. Her children were the elemental powers or forces, such as wind and water, earth and fire, but these are not to be confused with the evil progeny of Apap. Both are elemental in their origin, but the first were baneful, whereas the latter are beneficent. When the terrors of the elements had somewhat spent their force and were found to be non-sentient and unintelligent, the chief objects of regard and propitiation were recognized in the bringers of food and drink and the breath of air as the elements of life. Those were the beneficent powers born of the old mother as elemental forces that preceded the existence of the gods or powers divinized. The transformation of an elemental power into a god can be traced, for example, in the deity Shu. Shu as an elemental force was representative of wind, air, or breath and more especially the breeze of dawn and eve, which was the very breath of life to Africa. Darkness was uplifted or blown away by the breeze of dawn. The elemental force of wind was imaged as a panting lion crouched upon the horizon or the mountaintop as lifter up of darkness or the sky of night. The power thus represented was animistic or elemental. Next, Shu was given his star, and he became the Red God, who attained the rank of stellar deity as one of the seven heroes who obtained their souls in the stars of heaven. The Lion of Shu was continued as the figure of his force, and thus a god was born, the Warrior God, who was one of the heroes, or one of the powers in an astronomical character. Three of these beneficent powers were divinized as male deities in the Kamite pantheon, under the names of Nu, Shu, and Seb. Nu was the producer of that water which in Africa was looked upon as an overflow of very heaven. Shu was the giver of the breath of life. Seb was divinized and therefore worshipped as the god of earth and father of food. These three were powers that represented the elements of water, air, and earth. Water is denoted by the name of Nu. Shu carries the lion's hinder part upon his head as the sign of force. The totem of Seb is the goose that lays the egg, a primitively perfect figure of food. These, as elemental powers or animistic souls, were life-givers in the elements of food, water, and breath, not as begetters or creators, but as transformers from one phase of life to another, finally including the transformation of the superhuman power into the human product. There are seven of these powers altogether which we shall have to follow in various phases of natural phenomena and on diverse radiating lines of descent. Tentatively, we might parallel darkness equals sut, light equals Horus, breathing power equals shoe, water equals new or happy, earth equals tumatuf or seb, fire equals kabsinuf, blood equals child Horus, these were not derived from the ancestral spirits, once human, and no ancestral spirits ever were derived from that. Six of the seven were prehuman types. The seventh was imaged in the likeness of child Horus, or of Atum, the man. Two lists of names for the seven are given in the ritual, 
which correspond to the two categories of the elemental powers and the glorious ones, or heroes. Speaking of the seven, the initiate in the mystery says, I know the names of the seven glorious ones. The leader of that divine company is An-Aref, the great by name. The title here identifies the human elemental as the sightless mortal Horus, that is, Horus who was incarnated in the flesh at the head of the seven, to become the first in status, he who had been the latest in development. In this chapter of the ritual, the seven have now become astronomical, with their stations fixed in heaven by Anup, whom we shall identify as deity of the pole. They do better, says Plutarch, who believe that the legends told of Sut, Osiris, and Isis do not refer to either gods or men, but to certain great powers that were superhuman, but not as yet divine. The same writer remarks that Osiris and Isis passed from the rank of good demons, elementals, to that of deities. This was late in the Kamite mythos, but it truly follows the earlier track of the great powers when these were Sat and Horus, Shu and Seb, and the other elemental forces that were divinized as gods. In the astronomical mythology, the nature powers were raised to the position of rulers on high, and this is that beginning which was described by Manetho with the gods as the primary class of rulers, whose reign was divided into seven sections, or as we read it, in a heaven of seven divisions, that is, the celestial heptonomy. Certain of these can be distinguished in the ancient heavens yet as figures of the constellations which became their totems. Among such were the hippopotamus bull of Sut, the crocodile dragon of Sebek Horus, the lion of Shu, the goose of Seb, the beetle of Keper, Cancer, and other types of those starry souls on high now designated deities, or the glorious ones, as the Kuti. The ancient mother, who had been the cow of earth, was elevated to the sphere as the cow of heaven. It was she who gave rebirth to the seven powers that obtained their souls in the stars, and who were known as the children of the thigh, when that was her constellation. These formed the company of the seven glorious ones, who became the Ali, or Elohim, Divine masters, timekeepers, makers, and creators, which have to be followed in a variety of phases and characters. The Egyptian gods were born then as elemental powers. They were born as such of the old first great mother, who in her character of Mother Earth was the womb of life, and therefore mother of the elements, of which there are seven altogether, called her children. The seven elemental powers acquired souls as gods in the astronomical mythology. They are given rebirth in heaven as the seven children of the old great mother. In the stellar mythos, they are also grouped as the seven Kus with Anup on the mount. They are the seven Tasu with Tat in the lunar mythos and seven Kemu with Ta in the solar mythos. They then pass into the eschatology of the seven souls of Ra, the Holy Spirit, and the seven great spirits glorified with Horus as the eighth in the resurrection from Amenta. The Egyptians have preserved for us a portrait of Apt, Keb, or Ta'ert, the great mother, in a fourfold figure, as the bringer forth of the four fundamental elements of earth, water, air, and heat. As representative of the earth, she is a hippopotamus. As representative of water, she is a crocodile. And as the representative of breathing force, she is a lioness. The human mother being imaged by the pendant breasts and procreant womb. Thus, the mother of life is depicted as bringer forth of the elementals of life, or at least four of these as the elemental forces or souls of earth, water, fire, and air, which four are imaged in her compound corpulent figure, and were set forth as four of her seven children. Apt was also the mother of sparks, or of souls as sparks of starry fire. She was the kindler of life from the spark that was represented by the star. This, we reckon, is the soul of Sut, her firstborn, as the beneficent power of darkness. The power of water was imaged by Sebek Horus as the crocodile. The power of wind or air in one character was that of the lion god Shu. And the power of the womb is the child Horus, as the fecundator of his mother. These, with some slight variations, are four of the seven powers of the elementals, identified with the mother as the bringer forth of gods and men 
whom we nowadays call Mother Nature. Six of the total seven were represented by zootypes, and Horus was personalized in the form of a child. Evidence for a soul of life in the dark was furnished by the star. Hence, the soul and star are synonymous under the name of Kabsu in Egyptian. This was an elemental power of darkness divinized in Sut, the author of astronomy. Evidence for a soul of life in the water was furnished by the fish that was eaten for food. This elemental power was divinized in the fish god Sebek and in Itzthus, the mythical fish. Evidence for a soul of life in the earth was also furnished in food and in periodic renewal. The elemental power was divinized in Seb, the father of food derived from the ground, the plants, and the goose. Evidence for a soul of life in the sun, represented by the Uraeus serpent, was furnished by the vivifying solar heat, the elemental power of which was divinized in Ra. Evidence for a soul of life in blood was furnished by the incarnation, the elemental power of which was divinized in Elder Horus, the eternal child. Six of these seven powers, we repeat, were represented by zootypes. The seventh was given the human image of a child, and later of Atum, the man. Thus, the earliest gods of Egypt were developed from the elements, and were not derived from the expanded ghosts of dead men. Otherwise stated, the ancestral spirits were not primary. Dr. Rink, writing of the Eskimo, has said that, with them, the whole visible world is ruled by supernatural powers or owners, each of whom holds sway within certain limits, and is called his Inua, viz. its or his Inuk, which word signifies man and also owner or inhabitant. This is cited by Herbert Spencer as most conclusive evidence that the agent or power was originally a human ghost, because the power may be expressed as the Inuk or its man, the man in it. That is, the man's ghost in it. The writer did not think of the long way the race had to travel before the power could be expressed by its man, or how late was the anthropological mode of representing the forces of external nature. The man, as type of power, belongs to a far later mode of expression. Neither man nor woman nor child was among the earliest representatives of the elemental forces in external nature. By the by, the Inuk is the power, and in Egyptian, the root Nuk denotes the power or force of a thing, the potency of the male, as the bull. Thence, Nukta is the strong man or giant. Sut was a Sutan Nukt. Horus was a Sutan Nukt. But neither of them were derived from man. The elements themselves were the earliest superhuman powers, and these were thought of and imaged by superhuman equivalents. The power of darkness was not represented by its man, or the ghost of man. Its primal power, which was that of swallowing all up, was imaged by the devouring dragon. The force of wind was not represented by its man, but by its roaring lion, the drowning power of water by the wide-jawed crocodile, the power of lightning or of sunstroke by its serpent sting, the spirit of fire by the fiery-spirited ape, in this way, all the elemental forces were equated and objectified before the zootype of sign language was changed for the human figure, or any one of them attained its man as the representative of the power. The earliest type of the man, even as male power, was the bull, the bull of his mother, who was a cow or hippopotamus. Neither god nor goddess ever had been man or woman or the ghosts of either in the mythology of Egypt the oldest in the world. The great mother of all was imaged like the totemic mother as a cow, a serpent, a sow, a crocodile, or other zootype, ages before she was represented as a woman or the ghost of one. It is the same with the powers that were born of her as male, six of which were portrayed by means of zootypes before there was anyone in the likeness of a man, woman, or child. And these powers were divinized as the primordial gods. The Egyptians had no god who was derived from a man. They told Herodotus that in 11,340 years, as he reckons, no god had ever actually become a man. Therefore, Osiris did not originate as a man. Atum, for one, was a god in the likeness of a man, but he was known as a god who did not himself become a man. On the other hand, no human ancestor ever became a deity. 
It was the same in Egypt as in Inner Africa. The spirits of the human ancestors always remained human. The glorified never became divinities. The nearest approach to a deity of human origin is the god in human likeness. The elder Horus is the divine child in a human shape. The god Atum in name and form is the perfect man. But both child and man are entirely impersonal. That is, neither originated in an individual child or personal man. Neither was a human being divinized. It is only the type that was anthropomorphic. The two categories of spirits are separately distinguished in the Hall of Righteousness, when the Osiris pleads that he has made oblations to the gods and funeral offerings to the departed. And again, in the chapter following, the oblations are presented to the gods and the sacrificial meals to the glorified. A single citation from the chapter of the ritual that is said on arriving at the judgment hall will furnish a brief epitome of the Egyptian religion as it culminated in the Osirian cult. I have propitiated the great God with that which he loveth. I have given bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, a boat to the shipwrecked. I have made oblations to the gods and funeral offerings to the departed, or to the ancestral spirits. The statement shows that the divine service consisted of good works, and primarily of charity. The gods and the glorified to whom worship was paid are, one, the great one God, Osiris, two, the nature powers, or gods, and three, the spirits of the departed. But the order in development was, one, the elemental forces or animistic nature powers, two, the ancestral spirits, three, the one great God overall, who was imaged phenomenally in the Kamite trinity of Asar, Isis, and matter, Horus and soul, Ra and spirit, which three were blended into the great one God. In the hymn to Osiris, line six, the ancestral spirits are likewise discriminated from the divine powers or gods. When Osiris goes forth in peace by command of Seb, the god of earth, the mighty ones bow the head, the ancestors are in prayer. These latter are the commonality of the dead, the human ancestors in general, distinguished from the gods or powers of the elements that were divinized in the astronomical mythology. In one of the texts, the spirits of the king, the ever-living Mer-en-Ra, are set forth as an object of religious regard, superior in status to that of the gods, by which we understand the ancestral spirits are here exalted above the elemental powers as the objects of propitiation and invocation. The Egyptian gods and the glorified were fed on the same diet in the fields of divine harvest, but are entirely distinct in their origin and character. The glorified are identifiable as spirits that once were human, who have risen from the dead in the glorified body of Sahus. The gods are spirits or powers that never had been human. We know the great ones, female or male, from the beginning as elemental forces. They were always extant in nature. These were first recognized, represented, and divinized as superhuman. The ghost, when recognized, was human still, however changed and glorified. But the Mother Earth had never seen a human mother, nor had the serpent Ranut or Nut, the celestial wateress, the god of the pole as Anup, the moon god Tat, the sun god Ra, had never been spirits in a human guise. They were divinized and therefore worshipped or propitiated as the superhuman powers in nature, chiefly as the givers of light, food, and drink, and as keepers of time and reason. These, then, are the goddesses and gods that were created by the human mind as powers that were impersonal and non-human. Hence, they had to be envisaged with the aid of living types, spirits once human manifest as ghosts in human form. It follows that the gods were primary, and that worship or extreme reverence was first addressed to them and not to the ancestral spirits, which, according to H. Spencer and his followers, had no objective existence. Neither is there any sense in saying the Egyptian deities were conceived in animal forms. This is to miss the meaning of the sign language altogether. Conception has not to do with Horus being represented by a hawk or a crocodile or a calf, Seb by a goose, Shu by a lion, Ranut by a serpent, Isis by a scorpion. The primary question is, 
Why were the goddesses and gods or powers presented under these totemic types, which preceded the anthrotype and the different modes of mythical representation? Three of the seven children born of the Great Mother had been traced in the portrait of Apt, the first genetrix, as Sut, the hippopotamus, Sebek, the crocodile, and Shu, the lion. But there was an earlier phase of representation with her two children, Sut and Horus, who were born twins. It is the same in the Kamite mythology as in external nature. The two primary elements were those of darkness and light. Sut was the power of darkness, Horus the power of light. In one representation, the two elements were imaged by means of the black bird of Sut and the white bird, or golden hawk, of Horus. Thus, we can identify two elemental powers, as old as night and day, which are primeval in universal mythology. And these two powers, or animistic souls, were divinized as the two gods, Sut and Horus, with the two birds of darkness and light. The black vulture and the gold hawk depicted back-to-back as their two representative types or personal totems. The beginning with these two primal powers is repeated in the mythology of the blacks on the other side of the world. With them, the crow and hawk, the eagle hawk, are equivalent to these two birds of darkness and light. And according to the native traditions, the eagle hawk and crow were first among the ancestors of the human race. That is, as the first two of the elemental powers which became the non-human ancestors in mythology. They are also known as the creators who divided the Murray Blacks into two classes or brotherhoods, whose totems were the eagle hawk and crow, and who now shine as stars in the sky. This is the same point of departure in the beginning in the Kamite mythos with the first two elemental powers, viz. those of darkness and light. These two birds are also equated by the black cockatoo and the white cockatoo as the two totems of the Mukyarawaint in Western Australia. The two animistic souls or spirits of the two primary elements can be paralleled in the two souls that are assigned to man or the manas and the traditions of certain aboriginal races, called the dark shade and the light shade, the first two souls of the seven in the ritual. These, as Egyptian, are two of the seven elements from which the enduring soul and total personality of man is finally reconstituted in Amenta after death. They are the dark shade, called the Kabsu, and the light shade, called the Sahu. A Zulu legend relates that in the beginning there were two mothers in the beds of reeds who brought forth two children, one black, the other white. The woman in the two beds of reeds was Mother Earth who had been duplicated in the two mothers who brought forth in space when this was first divided into night and day. Another version of the mythical beginning with a black and white pair of beings was found by Duff MacDonald among the natives of Central Africa. The black man, they say, was crossing a bridge, and as he looked round, he was greatly astonished to find that a white man was following him. These are the powers of darkness and daylight who were portrayed in Egypt as the Sut and Horus twins one of whom was the black Sut, the other the white Horus, and the two men were elementals. The natives on the shores of Lake Rudolph say that when it thunders, a white man is born. But the white man thus born is the flash of light or lightning imaged by an anthropomorphic figure of speech. The aborigines of Victoria likewise say the moon was a black fellow before he went up into the sky to become light or white. Horus in Egypt was the white man as an elemental power, the white one of the Sat and Horus twins, who is sometimes represented by an eye that is white, whereas the eye of Sat was black. In the mythos, Horus is divinized as the white god. The children of Horus, who are known to mythology as the solar race, are the Kuti. These are the white spirits, the children of light. The solar race at last attained supremacy as chief of all the elemental powers. And in the eschatology, the Kuti are the glorious ones. The Kusain is the beautiful white bird. This signifies a spirit, and the spirit may be a human ghost, or it may be the spirit of light, otherwise light imaged as a spirit. Thence Horus, the spirit of light in the mythology, or the glorified human spirit called the Ku in the eschatology. The symbol of whiteness, such as the white down of birds, pipe clay, chalk, flower, the white stone, and other things employed in the mysteries of the black races and in their mourning for the dead, derive their significance from white being emblematic of spirit, or the spirits which originated in the element of light being the white spirit. 
The turning of black men into white is a primitive African way of describing the transformation of the mortal into spirit. It is the same in the mysteries of the Aleutians, who dance in a state of nudity with white eyeless masks upon their faces, by which a dance of spirits is denoted. With the blacks of Australia, the secret wisdom is the same as that of the dark race in Africa. According to Buckley, when the black fellow was buried, the one word, animediate, was uttered, which denoted that he was gone to be made a white man. But this did not mean a European. Initiates in the totemic mysteries were made into white men by means of pipe clay and birds of down, or white masks, the symbols of spirits in the religious ceremonies. This mode of transformation was not intended as a complement of the pale face of Europe. Neither did white spirits and black originate with seeing the human ghost. Horus is the white spirit in the light half of the lunation. Sut in the dark half is the dark fellow, because they represent the elements of light and darkness that were divinized in mythology. Hence the eternal contention of the twins Sut and Horus in the moon. It is common in the African mysteries for the spirits to be painted or arrayed in white, and the custom of pipe-claying the face on purpose to cause dismay in battle. The white was intended to suggest spirits, and thus to strike the enemy with fear and terror. Also, when spirits are personated in the mysteries of the Arunta and other tribes of Australian Aborigines, they are represented in white by means of pipe-clay and the white down of birds. It is very pathetic, this desire and strenuous endeavor of the black races from Central Africa to Egypt, or to the heart of Australia, to become white as the children of light, and to win and wear the white robe as a vesture of spiritual purity, if only represented by a white mask or coating of chalk, pipe clay, or white feathers. Many a white man has lost his life and been made up into medicine by the black fellows on account of his white complexion being the same with that assigned to the good or white spirits of light. In a legend of creation preserved among the Cabinda, it is related that God made all men black. Then he went across a great river and called upon all men to follow him. The wisest, the best, the bravest of those who heard the invitation plunged into the wide river, and the river washed them white. These were the ancestors of white men. The others were afraid to venture. They remained behind in their old world and became the ancestors of black men. But to this day the white men come as spirits to the bank on the other side of the river and echo the ancient cry of, Come thou hither, saying, Come, it is better over here. These are the white spirits, called the white men by the black races, who originated in the representation of light as an elemental spirit the same term being applied afterwards to the white bird, the white god, and the white man. This legend is also to be found in Egypt. As the ritual shows, there was an opening day of creation, designated the day of come thou to me. The call was made by Ra, from the other side of the water, to Osiris in the darkness of Amenta. That is, from Ra as the white spirit to Osiris the black in the eschatology. But there was an earlier application of the saying in the solar mythos. In the beginning, says the best-known Egyptian version, the sun god Timu, whose name denotes the creator god, having awoke in the new from the state of negative existence, appeared, as it were, upon the other side of the water, a figure of sunrise, and suddenly cried across the water, Come thou to me, as spirits. Then the lotus unfolded its petals, and up flew the hawk, which represented the sun in mythology and a soul in the eschatology. Thus Tom, the feather of souls, being established in his spiritual supremacy, calls upon the race of men to come to him across the water in the track of sunrise, or of the hawk that issued forth as Horus from the lotus. From such an origin in the course of time, all nature would be peopled with black spirits and white, as animistic entities, or as the children of Sut and Horus, as the black vultures or crows of the one, and the white vultures or gold hawks of the other. Thus we have traced a soul of darkness and a soul of light that became Egyptian gods in the twin powers, Sut and Horus, and were called the dark shade and the light of other races, the two first souls that were derived as elementals. The anima, or breath of life, was one of the more obvious of the six souls, whose genesis was visible in external nature. This was the element assigned to Shu, the god of breathing force. In the chapter for giving the breath of life to the deceased, 
The speaker in the character of Shu says, I am Shu who conveys the breezes or breathings. I give air to these younglings as I open my mouth. These younglings are the children whose souls are thus derived from Shu. When the soul and breath were one, and Shu was this one of the elemental powers divinized as male. Misters Spencer and Gillen have shown that up to the present time, the Arunta tribes of Central Australia do not ascribe the begettal of a human soul to the male parent. They think the male may serve a purpose in preparing the way for conception, but they have not yet got beyond the incorporation of a soul from the elements of external nature, such as wind or water, that is, the power of the air or of water, which was imaged in the elemental deity. Spirit children, derivable from the air, are supposed to be especially fond of traveling in a whirlwind, and on seeing one of these approaching, a native woman who does not wish to have a child will flee as if for her life to avoid impregnation. This doctrine of a soul is supposed to be incorporated from the elements is so ancient in Egypt as to have been almost lost sight of or concealed from view beneath the mask of mythology. The doctrine, however, was Egyptian. The insufflation of the female by the spirit of air was the same when the goddess Neith was impregnated by the wind. With the Arunta tribes, it is the ordinary woman who is insufflated by the animistic soul of air. In Egypt, from the earliest monumental period, the female was represented mythically as the great mother Neith, whose totem, so to call it, was the white vulture, and this bird of maternity was said to be impregnated by the wind. This kind of spirit not only entered the womb of Neith, or of an Arunta female, it also went out of the human body in a whirlwind. Once, when a great Fijian chief passed away, a whirlwind swept across the lagoon. An old man who saw it covered his mouth with his hand and said in an awestruck whisper, There goes his spirit. This was the passing of a soul in the likeness of an elemental power, the spirit of air that was imaged in the god Shu, the spirit that impregnated the virgin goddess Neith. According to a mode of thinking in external things which belong to spiritualism, so to say, in the animistic stage, the human soul had not yet then been specialized and did not go forth from the body as the ka, or human double. It was only a totemic soul affiliated to the power of wind, which came and went like the wind, as the breath of life. To quote the phrase employed by Mr. Spencer and Gillen, a spirit child was incarnated in the mother's womb by the spirit of air. The doctrine is the same in the Christian phase, when the Holy Spirit makes its descent on Mary and insufflates her with the dove for totem instead of some other type of breathing force or soul. There is likewise a survival of primitive doctrine when the Virgin Mary is portrayed in the act of inhaling the fragrance of the lily to procure the mystical conception of the Holy Child. This is a mode of inhaling the spirit breath or anima, the same as in the mystery of the Arunta, but with the difference that the Holy Spirit takes the place of the spirit of air, otherwise that raw as source of soul, has superseded the Shu, the breathing force. Such things will show how the most primitive simplicities of ancient times have supplied our modern religious mysteries. We learn also from the Arunta tribes that it is a custom for the mother to affiliate her child thus incorporated, not incarnated, to the particular elemental power, as spirit of air or water, tree or earth, supposed to haunt the spot where she conceives, or may have quickened. Thus, the spirit child is, or may be, a reincorporation of the Alcharinga ancestor, who, as Egyptian, is the elementary power divinized in the eschatology, and who is to be identified by the animal or plant which is the totemic type of either. Not that the animal or plant was supposed by the knowers to be transformed directly into a human being, but that the elemental power, or superhuman spirit, entered like the gust that insufflated the vulture of Neith, or caused conception, whether in the Arunta female or the Virgin Mary. The surroundings at the spot will determine the totem of the spirit, and therefore of the spirit child. Hence the tradition of the Churinga being dropped at the place where the mother was impregnated by the totemic spirit, which, considering the sacred nature of the Churinga, was certainly a form of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of air rushed out of the gap between the hills, 
or it was at the water hole, or near the sacred rock, or the totemic tree, that the mother conceived. And by means of such, the child is affiliated to the elemental power, the animistic spirit, the Alturinga ancestor, as well as to the totemic group. The mother caught by the power of wind in the gap is the equivalent of divine Neith caught by the air god Shu and insufflated in the gorge of Neith. The element of life incorporated is the source of breath, or the spirit of air, which would have the same natural origin whether it entered the female in her human form or into that of the bird, beast, fish, or reptile. It was the incorporation of an elemental spirit, whether of air, earth, water, fire, or vegetation. In popular phraseology, running water is called living water, and still water is designated dead. There's no motion in dead water, no life, no force, no spirit. Contrarywise, the motion of living water, the running spring or flowing inundation, is the force, and finally, the soul of life in the element. Air was the breath of life, and therefore a soul of life was in the breeze. In the deserts of Central Africa, the breeze of dawn and eve and the springs of water in the land are very life indeed, and the givers of life itself, as they have been from the beginning. These then are two of the elements that were brought forth as nature powers by the earth, the original mother of life and of all living things. When the supreme life-giving, life-sustaining power was imaged as a pouring forth of overflowing energy, the solar orb became a figure of such a fountainhead or source. But an earlier type of this great welling forth was water. Hence Osiris personates the element of water as he who is shoreless. He is objectified as the water of renewal. His throne in heaven, earth, and amenta is balanced upon water. Thus the primary element of nutriment has the first place to the last with the root origin of life and water. Birth from the element of water was represented in the mysteries of Amenta by the rebirth in spirit from the water of baptism. It is as a birth of water that child Horus calls himself the primary power of motion. Also, the children of Horus who stand on the papyrus plant or lotus are born of water in the new kingdom that was founded for the father by Horus the son. This too was based upon the water, hence two of Horus's children, Tamutef and Kabusenef are called the two fishes, and elsewhere the followers of Horus are the fishers. One of the two lakes in paradise contained the water of life. It was designated the Lake of Sa, and one of the meanings of the word is spirit, another is soil or basis. It was a lake, so to say, of spiritual matter from which spirits were derived in germ, as the Hamamat. This lake of spirit has assuredly been localized in Europe. The superstition concerning spirits that issue from the water is common. And in the Straths Bay, there's a lake called Loch Nan Spiridon, the lake of the spirits. When spirit children were derived from the soul of life that was held to be inherent in the element of water, they would become members of the water totem, unless some prearrangement interfered. For example, a water totem is extant in the Quacha totem of the Arunta tribe. A child was conceived one day by a lubra of the Wichity Grub clan, who happened to be in the neighborhood of Aquacha, or water locality. She was taking a drink of water near to the gap in the ranges where the spirits dwell, when suddenly she heard a child's voice crying, Mia, Mia, the native term for relationship, which includes that of motherhood. She was not anxious to have a child and therefore ran away, but could not escape. She was fat and well-favored, and the spirit child overtook her and was incorporated willy-nilly. In this instance, the spirits were witchetty grub instead of water spirits of the Quachitotem locality. Otherwise, if the totem had not been already determined locally, this would represent the modus operandi of the elemental power becoming humanized by incorporation. The water spirit is a denizen of the water element, always lying in wait for young, well-favored women and ready to become embodied in the human form by the various processes of drinking, eating, breathing, or other crude ways of conversion and transformation. The several elements led naturally to the various origins ascribed to man, from the ideographic representatives of earth, water, air, fire, such as the beast of earth, the turtle or fish of water, the bird of air, the tree or the stone. 
The Samoans have a tradition that the first man issued from a stone. His name was Muiki, and he is also reputed to be the discoverer of fire. Now, the discoverer of fire, born of a stone, evidently represents the element of fire which had been found in the stone. The element being the animistic spirit of fire to which the stone was body that served as type. The derivation of a soul of life from the element of fire, or from the spark, is likewise traceable in the legend of the Arunta, who thus explain the origin of their fire totem. A spark of fire in the Alcharenga was blown by the north wind from the place where fire was kindled first, in the celestial north, to the summit of a great mountain represented by Mount Hay. Here it fell to the earth and caused a huge conflagration. When this subsided, one class of the Inapurta creatures issued from the ashes. These were the ancestors of the people of the fire totem, the people born from the element of fire. The tradition enables us to identify an origin for children born of fire, or the soul of fire, that is, the power of this element. Moreover, it is fire from heaven. It falls as a spark, which spark falls everywhere in the fire stone. These particular inaborta, or pre-human creatures, were discovered by two men of Wungara, or wild duck totem, and made by them into men and women of the fire totem. Such then are the offspring of fire or light, where others are the children of air or of water. As one of the elemental or animistic powers, and the pre-human creatures became men and women when they were made totemic. The transformation is a symbolical mode of deriving the totemic people from the pre-human and pre-totemic powers, which were elemental. There's a class of beings in the German folktales who are a kind of spirit, but not of human origin, like so many others that are a product of primitive symbolism which came to be designated elementals because they originated in the physical elements. These little earth men have the feet of a goose or a duck. Here the Kamite wisdom shows how these are spirits of the earth who descended from Seb, the power spirit or god of earth, whose zootype in Egypt was the goose. Thus the earth god or elemental power of the mythos becomes the goose-footed earth man of the Marchen and later folklore which are the debris of the Kamite mythology. The cave dwellers in various lands are likewise known as children of the earth. Their birthplace may be described as a bed of reeds, a tree, a cleft in the rock, or the hole in a stone. Each type denotes the earth as primordial bringer forth and mother of primeval life. Children with souls derived from the element of earth are also represented by the Arunta as issuing from the earth via the Erythropa stone. The stone equal to the earth is here the equivalent for the parsley bed from which the children issue in the folklore of the British Isles. The word Erythropa signifies a child, though seldom used in this sense. Also a figure of the human birthplace is very naturally indicated. There's a round hole on one side of the stone through which the spirit children waiting for incorporation in the earthly form are supposed to peep when on the lookout for women, nice and fat, to mother them. It is thought that women can become pregnant by visiting this stone. The imagery shows that the child stone not only represents the earth as the bringer forth of life, but that it also is an emblem of emanation from the mother's womb. There is an aperture in the stone over which a black band is painted with charcoal. This unmistakably suggests the pubes. The painting is always renewed by any man who happens to be in the vicinity of the stone. These erythopa stones are found in various places. This may explain one mode of deriving men from stones. The stone or rock in this case being a figure of the Mother Earth. In such wise, the primitive representation survives in legendary lore and the myth remains as a tale that is told. Earth, as the birthplace in the beginning, was typified by the tree and stone. A gap in the mountain range, a cleft in the rock, or the hole in a stone presented a likeness to the human birthplace. The mystery of the stone affords an illuminative instance of the primitive mode of thinging in sign language, or thinking in things. Conceiving a child was thought of as a concretion of spirit and that concretion or crystallization was symbolized by means of the white stone and the mysteries, 
It is the tradition of the Arunta tribe that when a woman conceives, or as they render it, when the spirit child enters the womb, a Charinga stone is dropped, which is commonly supposed to be marked with a device that identifies the spirit child, and therefore the human child with its totem. Usually, the Charinga is found on the spot by some of the tribal elders, who deposit it in the Ertnatulunga, or storehouse, in which the stones of conception are kept so sacredly that they must never be looked upon by woman or child or any uninitiated man. Each Turinga is so closely bound up with the spirit individual, or the spirit individualized, that it is regarded as its representative in the Ertnalatunga, or treasury of sacred objects. In this way, the Arunta were affirming that when a child was conceived of an elemental power, whether born figuratively from the rock or tree, the air, or the water, or it may be from the spark and the stone that fell with the fire from heaven, or actually from the mother's womb. It was in the possession of a spirit that was superhuman in its origin and enduring beyond the life of the mortal. This was expressed by means of the stone as a type of permanence. Hence, when the stone could not be identified upon the spot, a charinga was cut from the very hardest wood that could be found. The stones were then saved up in the repository of the tribe or totemic group, and these charingas are the stones and trees in which primitive men have been ignorantly supposed to be keeping their souls for safety outside their own bodies by those who know nothing of the ancient sign language. A magical mode of evoking the elemental spirit from material substance survives in many primitive customs. Whistling for the wind is a way of summoning the spirit or force of the breeze, which was represented in Egypt as the power of a panting lion. Touching wood or iron or calling out knife to be safe is an appeal to the elemental spirit as a protecting power. Setting the poker upright in the front of a grate to make the fire burn is a mode of appeal made to the spirit of fire in the metal. This, like so many more, has been converted to the superstition of the cross. The Servians at their Kolodar set light to an oak log and sprinkle the wood with wine. Then they strike it and cause sparks to fly out, crying, So many sparks! So many goats and sheep! So many sparks! So many pigs and calves! So many sparks! So many successes and so many blessings. These, in their way, were seekers after life, the elemental spirit of life in this instance being that of fire from the spark. The element of fire was evoked from both wood and stone. It was their spirit child. Now it is a mode of magic to evoke a spirit from these by rubbing the wood or stone, or the totems made from either. And this way of kindling fire is applied by the Arunta, for the purpose of calling forth the spirits of children from the Aritapa stones, which are supposed to be full of them. By rubbing a man can cause them to come forth and enter the human mother. Clearly, the modus operandi is based on rubbing the stone or wood to kindle fire from the spark that signified a germ or soul of life. Another mode of evoking the spirit of and from an element may be illustrated by a kafir custom. When the girls have come of age and have suffered the opening rite of puberty, it is the Zulu fashion for the initiate to run stark naked through the first plenteous downpour of water, which is characteristically called a he-rain, to secure fertilization from the nature power. In this custom, a descent of the elemental spirit for incorporation is by water instead of fire, or earth, air, or light. But the principle is the same in primitive animism. Whatever the agent, there is a derivation from a source that is superhuman, if only elemental. It was the elemental powers that supplied pre-human souls in the primitive sociology. These we term totemic souls, souls that were common to the totemic group of persons, plants, animals, or stones, when there was no one soul yet individualized or distinguished from the rest as the human soul. They could not be the souls of men. They were supposed to inhabit the bodies of beasts and birds, reptiles and insects, plants and stones. When there were no souls of men yet discreted from the pre-human souls in old totemic times, the human lives or souls are bound up with the totemic animal or bird, reptile or tree, because these represented the same animistic nature power 
from which the soul that is imaged by the totem was derived. The soul in common led to the common interest, the mysterious relationship and bond of unity betwixt man and animal and elemental powers, or the later gods. It was this totemic soul common to man and animal which explains the tradition of the Papagos, that in the earlier times, men and beasts talked together, and a common language made all brethren. In the primary phases, the soul that takes shape in the human form was derived directly from the element as source of life. In the second phase of representation, the powers of the elements were imaged by the totemic zootypes. Thence arose the universal tradition, sometimes called belief, of an animal ancestry in which the beasts, birds, reptiles, fish, plants, trees, rocks, or stones were the original progenitors of the human race. Through the growing ignorance of primitive sign language, spirit children derived from the elemental power of air are described in the ritual as the younglings of Shu, the god of breathing force. And as the lion was the totem of Shu, the children would or might be derived from the lion as their totemic type. Germs of soul might ascend from the water of life in the celestial lake of Sa, or soul, as the children of Nu. The children of Horus are emanations from the sun. As such, they have their birth in heaven to become incorporate on the earth, child Horus being first, according to the eschatology. It is because the sun was looked upon at one stage as the elemental source of a soul that its power could be, as it was, represented by a phallus. Thence also arose the belief that the sun could impregnate young women. This will partly explain why the female, at the time of first menstruation, must be looked on by the sun. The young and fat Arunta woman, fleeing to escape from the embraces of the wind for fear of being impregnated with the elemental spirit child, suggests a clue. She did not wish to bear a child, therefore she fled from the elemental power. In this other case, the maiden must not be caught, for fear a soul should be made incarnate under the new conditions. For this reason, the young girls were taught that terrible results would happen if they were seen by the sun in their courses, and they were consequently kept in the shade, or were instructed to hide themselves when the time arrived. They were not merely secluded at puberty, but were shut up sometimes darkly for years together, and suspended on a stage betwixt earth and heaven as taboo until the period of pubescence came, at which moment they must not be shone upon by the sun, not breathed on by the air, nor must they touch the elements of earth or water. They were secluded and consecrated for puberty, and were shut up from the elements to which generation had been attributed by the early human thought, a superior element of soul being now recognized in the blood of the virgin. Blood was the latest element of seven from which a soul of life was derived. This followed the soul of air, water, heat, vegetation, or other force of the elements. And a soul derived from blood was the earliest human soul derived from the blood of the female. Not any blood, not ordinary menstrual blood, but the blood of the pubescent virgin who was personalized in the divine virgin Neith, or Isis, or Mary. In the Semitic creation of man or Adam, was created from a soul of blood. Blood and Adam are synonymous, and the previous races, which are but spittle, had derived their souls in common with the animals from the elements of external nature that were represented by totems, not by the blood of the mother nor by the ancestry of the father. Several forms of an external soul had been derived from the elements of earth, air, and water, and at length a human soul was differentiated from the rest. This was the soul of blood, which had been traced to the pubescent virgin. The virgin mother in mythology is only typical, but the type was founded in the natural fact that the mother blood originated with the virgin, when the blood was held to be the soul of life. This, to reiterate, was the pubescent virgin ready for connubium. The virgin Neith was represented by that bird of blood, the vulture, who was said to nurse her young on her own blood. The virgin Isis was portrayed as the red heifer, when child Horus was her red-complexioned calf. The first rendering, then, was pre-anthropomorphic, and at last the human likeness was adopted for the soul of blood, and this was imaged in child Horus at the soul born in the blood of Isis 
the divine blood mother, who was the typical virgin. This was the creation of man in the mythology, who was at Tom the Red in the Egyptian, Adam in the Hebrew version, and in the man this seventh soul was now embodied in the human form. The human soul was never conceived as a bird, but might be imaged as a bird, according to the primitive system of representation. The golden hawk, for instance, was a bird which typified the sun that soared aloft as Horus in the heavens. And the same bird in the eschatology was then applied to the human soul and its resurrection from the body. Hence, the hawk with the human head is a compound image, not the portrait of a human soul. The celestial poultry that pass for angels in the imagination of Christendom have no direct relation to spiritual reality. A feathered angel was never yet seen by clairvoyant vision and is not a result of revelation. We know how they originated, why they were so represented, and where they came from into the Christian eschatology. They are the human-headed birds that were compounded and portrayed for souls in Egypt and carried out thence into Babylonia, Judea, Greece, Rome, and other lands. In the Contes Arabis, published by Spita Bey, the soul of a female jinn, who has become the wife of a human husband, goes out of her as a beetle, and when the beetle is killed, the female dies. Again, in a German tale, the soul of a sleeping girl is seen to issue from her mouth in the form of a red mouse, and when the mouse is killed, the maiden dies. In both cases, we find Egyptian symbolism surviving in folklore. The red mouse was a zootype of the soul of blood, the soul derived from the mother of flesh, and being such, it was consecrated as an image of child Horus, who was born in the blood of Isis. And because it was a figure of an elemental soul in the ancient symbolism, the mouse remained the emblem of the human soul in the marchen of other nations. The scarabaeus placed in the chest of a deceased to signify another heart was given to the manes in Amenta. And the giving of this other heart to the manes was dramatically represented on the earth by inserting the beetle in the embalmed body as a typical new heart, the beetle being a type of transformation in death. According to Renouf in Parabels and Folklore, we have here the notion of a person's life or soul being detached from the body and hidden away at a distance. The person, he continues, does not appear to suffer in the least from the absence of so essential a part of himself. But this is not the genesis of the idea. What we find in folklore is not contemporary evidence for current beliefs. In this, the ancient wisdom is continually repeated without knowledge, and the symbols continue to be quoted at a wrong value. The soul or heart of a witch, the jinn, or the giant never was the soul of a mortal. The Arabic jinns originate as spirits of the elements. They appear in animal forms because the primary nature powers were first represented by the zootypes. Hence, such animals as jackals, hyenas, serpents, and others are called the cattle of the jinn. No human soul was ever seen in the guise of a mouse or a beetle, hawk or serpent, turtle, plant or tree, firestone or starry spark. If but for the fact that no one of the souls had been discreted separately as a human soul from the elemental animistic or totemic powers, which were pre-human. It was on the ground of a pre-human origin for such souls that a doctrine of pre-existence, of transmigration, of reincarnation for the soul could be and was established, i.e. because it was not the personal human soul. This account of an elemental origin for the earliest souls of life may help to explain that pre-existence of the soul, erroneously assumed to be the human soul, which crops up in legendary lore. In the Book of Secrets of Enoch, it was declared that every soul was created eternally before the foundation of the world. The pre-existence of souls is an Egyptian doctrine, but not of human souls already individualized and possessing each a personal identity. They were the elemental souls, not the ancestral human spirits. The Egyptian Hamamat survived in Talmudic tradition as a class of pre-human beings. It was held as a Jewish dogma that the souls were to enter human bodies had existed before the creation of the world, in the Garden of Eden, or in the seventh, i.e. the highest heaven. So the primordial powers in the ritual are identifiable with the divine ancestors who preceded Ra, and who are called the ancestors of Ra. 
Hail ye, chiefs, ancestors of Ra. Elsewhere, they are the seven souls of Ra, when Utam Ra becomes the one god in whom all previous powers are absorbed and glorified. The religious ceremonies of the Arunta date from and represent the doings of these ancestors in the Alcharinga, at a time when the ancestor as kangaroo was not directly distinguishable from the kangaroo as man. The derivation of souls from elemental and pre-human powers is marked when the Arunta claim that each individual is a direct reincarnation of the totemic ancestor who is still living in the Alcharinga. And as the same origin is assigned for the totemic animal, it follows that the man and animal are brothers, born of the same ancestral and pre-human soul. This is indicated when it is said that the spirit kangaroo enters the kangaroo animal in just the same way in which the spirit kangaroo man enters the womb of the kangaroo woman. These totemic souls are the pre-human ancestors of the Arunta tribes who lived in their pre-human as well as prehistoric past. Every native thinks that his mythical ancestor in the Alcharinga was the descendant of or is immediately associated with the animal or plant, which bears his totemic name. So intimately in the native mind are these ancestors associated with the totemic types that an Alcharinga man says of the kangaroo totem, that it may sometimes be spoken of either as a man-kangaroo or a kangaroo-man. The present explanation is that these ancestors in the Alteringa originated in the superhuman nature powers or elemental souls that were first represented by the totems which are afterwards or also representative of the totemic motherhood. Thus, the origin of the totemic man in this phase was not from the tree or animal of the totem whose name they bore, but from the elemental power or pre-human nature soul from which both the man and animal derived a soul of life in common. As it was in the Alcharinga, or old, old times of the mythical ancestors, which in other countries, as in Egypt, have become the gods, whereas in Australia, Inner Africa, China, India, and elsewhere, they remained the ancestors derived from animals, plants, and other zootypes that were totemic and pre-human. The derivation and descent of human souls from these superhuman elemental nature powers was at first direct. Afterwards, they were represented by totemic zootypes in ways already indicated and to be yet more fully shown. Thus, a clan of the Omahas were described as the wind people. The Damaras have kept count of certain totemic descents, or inadas from the elemental powers when they reckon that some of their people come from the sun and others come from the rain. Others come from the tree. The progenitor, as male, may and does take the mother's place in later ages, but the bringer forth was female from the first. So it is with the types. Hence the mount, the tree, the cave, the waterhole, the earth itself were naturally female. Indeed, we might say that locality is feminine as the birthplace, and the elemental power was brought forth as male. In Scotland, persons who bore the name of Tweed were supposed to have had the genie of the river Tweed for their ancestors, which denotes the same derivation from the elemental source, in this instance the spirit of water, as when the Arunta of the water totem claim descent by reincorporation from the elemental ancestor in the Alcharinga or as it might be in the Egyptian wisdom from the god Nu, or Num, or Happy, the descent being traceable at first by the totem and afterwards by the name. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.